Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31, and as I read, remember, we're reading God's word. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. May this word of the Lord unite us as a church and make us bold as Jesus' missionaries. You may be seated. All right, so I've got a couple questions for you to start, and I'm going to actually give you a minute to kind of think about this, because this these are the kind of questions that some of you will instantly know the answer to, and some of you will need a little bit of time to kind of think about uh, how you would answer this. You don't need to answer this out loud. You don't need to turn to your neighbor, but you could, I guess, if you want to really creep them out. You could answer uh, directly to them if you want. But here's, here, here are the, here's the first question. What's the best thing that has happened to you lately? What's the best thing that's happened to you lately? I mean, besides getting to fill out that survey. What's the, what's the best thing that's happened? Maybe you got promoted. Maybe uh, your kids, you know, moved out. Maybe, maybe moms, they moved back in. Ooh, that's so nice. You get to have them back, right? Maybe, uh, you know, maybe you're approaching retirement and that's actually like in sight and that's exciting. Maybe you got word that there's a scholarship you're going to be able to take advantage of next year. Maybe you're in love. What's the best thing that's happened to you lately? Take a minute. Think about that. And secondly, second question, what is the most challenging thing that you're facing right now? What's the most concerning thing? What's the thing that when you wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, your mind just turns on and it gets stuck there and you can't really go back to sleep? What are the things that are just weighing on you and pressing on you and you feel pressure about? What are you nervous about? What are you worried about? What's, what's weighing on you? Those are the two questions to start the morning. I know that that's a deep dive into the deep end of the pool. But what's the best thing that's happened to you? What's the most concerning thing that's happened to you? The reason why I think that's, those are important questions, uh, not only do they set the stage for what we're going to look at here from God's Word, but they actually are, uh, for Peter and John, who we've been following over these last couple weeks, um, this moment that they've just had is the, the same, it, it, it's both their best moment that they've had lately, and it's their most concerning moment. 
So if you haven't been with us, here's what's happened. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, who are two of Jesus' closest disciples, closest followers, and they're the leaders of this growing new church in Jerusalem uh, just about seven weeks after Jesus had been resurrected. They, in Acts chapter 3, they heal a man who was born lame. He asks them for money. He's sitting outside the temple begging. They say, he says, can I have some money? They say, silver and gold we don't have, but in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And it's this amazing miracle because this man has been lame for over 40 years. He sat outside the temple every day. Everyone knew who he was. Everyone knew about the story. And so when he starts leaping and jumping and praising God, everybody notices and they all rush together in Acts chapter 3 and they say, what is this? And Peter stands up and he says, listen, this is what Jesus does. Jesus resurrects people. Jesus renews people. Jesus restores people. Jesus refreshes people. And he's calling you to repent. He's calling you to turn from your sin, right? When he came the first time, you didn't acknowledge him. You didn't think he was really who he said he was. Turn around. And a bunch of people do. But in Acts chapter 4, at the beginning, what we looked at last week is that the religious leadership, this group called the Sanhedrin, the council of the elders and the rulers and and the, the Sadducees, they're threatened by this. They have a lot to lose, right? They can't deny that a miracle took place, right? It actually says that in uh, chapter 4, verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. In verse 16, they said, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Now, Now, this is the same group of people that just seven weeks earlier had put Jesus to death. And Peter and John are standing before them and they are threatened by by them saying that Jesus has risen from the dead and that Jesus is still alive and that Jesus is still working. And so they tell them, hey, stop talking about Jesus. You can't speak in that name anymore, right? And and the threat is, is not very far below the surface. Like you remember what we did to him, right, Peter and John? Knock it off. Stop it. Enough with your Jesus talk. Listen, that's fine. You can believe whatever you want, but keep it to yourself. Keep it private. And they say, no, we can't do that. Right? Whether we obey God or we obey you, you're going to have to judge, but we're going to obey God. Right? And so Peter and John have stared death in the face. Right? This is the most concerning moment of their lives, right? The same group of people that killed their friend and savior, Jesus, is now threatening to harm them as well. And yet this is also their very best moment because they walk out of there unscathed. They walk out of there. They have looked death in the eye and they have walked through it boldly, right? So, so they gather back together in verse 23 with their friends and they're celebrating what God has done, right? For Peter and John, This one moment, this situation before the council, it is both their best moment and their most concerning moment. Now, for us, I think we tend to overestimate how good things are. Sometimes we can overestimate how bad things are. I had an assistant baseball coach uh, who would always tell me, he'd say, listen, it's never as good as you think. It's never as bad as you think. The days you went four for four, you weren't as good as you thought. The days you struck out three times, you weren't as bad as you thought. Like, and, and we tend to get things real out of perspective or, or, or something happens and it's like, oh, of course, that's what I deserve because that's so good. And then something awful happens and it's like, oh my gosh, how could this possibly happen? 
And, and the way Peter and John respond to this is remarkable. It's steady. It's sober-minded. Right? They are both rejoicing. Right? They go home and tell their friends, look at what God's done. But they're also concerned because the threat here is not over. They're still going to face it. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Peter, in fact, isn't killed by that group of people, and he goes on to live a fairly long life. He eventually, tradition tells us, is martyred for his faith. He is killed for his faith. Uh, and eventually when Peter was killed, many years later, uh, he was crucified. And, and the tradition says, we don't know this for sure, but, but the, the church history tradition says that Peter knew that he wasn't worthy to die in the same way as his Savior, so he asked to be crucified upside down. So this is a man who eventually did die for his faith. But before he did that, he wrote a number of letters to the church. And one of the letters is, we call it 1 Peter. And here's what he says in 1 Peter 4. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Hey, you're concerned? There's, there's something heavy? There's something daunting? Hey, don't be surprised. That, that's life in this fallen world. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This is the same man who ran in fear before a little girl who accused him of knowing Jesus and now having seen the resurrected Christ, having been filled with the spirit, this is now a bold man who becomes an old man who says, listen, suffering's bad, but don't be surprised when it comes. And I think that this whole experience, I mean, this has to have shaped him, don't you think? Right, these moments that are like really the best moments, these moments that are really the worst, like when you look back, you go, that really shaped me. That really grew me. That really defined me in some ways. And that happened for Peter. And so that's what, uh, that's what he's writing about there. So that's what a little bit of what we see. We see on the best moment and in the worst moment, how do we respond? How might we pray? How might we draw near to God in the best of times and in the worst of times, but especially, especially in the scariest of times? When there's so much that's uncertain, when there's so much we don't know, when there's so much that we legitimately have real reason to fear, how do we respond? How do we pray? How might you respond to the very real thing that is concerning you? I think we get some help from this passage. So here's what we're going to look at uh, in this passage today is we're going to look at, at these, uh, these uh, disciples who what, what happens is, is Peter and John, they come back and they report to their friends and they have a time of prayer and we just have recorded for us what they prayed. And so here, here are the four things we're going to look at. We're going to look at how they pray. We're going to look at what they don't pray for what they do pray for, and why they pray this way. So how they pray, what they don't pray for, what they do pray for, and why they pray the way they do. So first, and this is brief, is how they pray. How they pray. Look at verse 23 and 24. It says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. I mean, you have to think the friends were on pins and needles waiting for the report, right? Because what had happened is they had healed this man on one day, and it was late in the afternoon, and so they were 
they, they were basically held overnight. They were detained for that one night. And then the next day, they have this encounter with all these religious leaders. And then they finally, you know, knock on the door. Here's Peter and John. And everybody, I'm sure, was praying. And they were maybe even fasting. They were thinking, oh, man, we know how this works. We know what this group is capable of. They're waiting on pins and needles and they come together and they see them and they're healthy and they're whole, right? They haven't been totally uh, beaten or anything like that. And they tell the chief priests and the scribes what, or they tell what the chief priests and the elders and the scribes had said. And so verse 24, it says, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said. So first we look at how they pray. They pray, notice this, they pray together. Do you see that in verse 24? And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. The the NASB says they lifted their voices with one accord. Another translation says with one mind. Another translation says in a wonderful harmony. They lifted their voices together. How they prayed, they prayed together. Let me ask this question. When the pressure comes, when the concerns mount, who's praying for you and who's praying with you? Like that question I asked, that second question of what's most concerning? Where do you feel the pressure the most? Who else knows about that? Now, sometimes they're going to know just because they're in proximity to you and they kind of understand and they're around you a lot. And sometimes you have to tell them. Sometimes you have to say, hey, I'm really pressured right now. I'm really burdened right now. I'm really concerned right now. Would you pray for me? Would you help me? Could you pray with me? And here's what's interesting. The time to forge those kinds of relationships the kinds of relationships that you can really lean on when things get tough, the kinds of people you can really go to when life is hard, the time to forge those relationships is before you need them. This is why the church community is so important. This is why we're always saying, we don't want you just in rows, we want you in circles. Maybe it's a circle that you serve with. Maybe it's another person that you volunteer uh, in kids ministry with and you get to know them. And through those things, as you're rocking babies or playing with toddlers, you might say, hey, would you pray for me this week? None of these kids will understand this. So can I just tell you what I'm dealing with and you could pray for me? Maybe it's in a redemption community. Maybe it's with another group of men or women that you decide to get together with. Maybe it's with believers at your work or believers at your gym or believers that that you know they know you and they love you. Do you have those kinds of relationships? I wonder how much we're facing both the best moments and the most difficult moments. And they're not as good as they could be when it's great. And they're scarier than they need to be when it's scary because we're doing it alone. We see here, they didn't pray alone. How they pray, they pray together. Second, notice what they don't pray for. Notice what they don't pray for. Continue in verse 24. Here's what they said. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Some of you are like, they haven't asked for anything yet. 
That's true. We'll come back to that. But then in verse 29, here's what they ask. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. We'll talk in a moment about what they do pray for, but first, notice what they don't pray for. And get this, there's a lot of things in the book of Acts, we're going to see this all along the way, we've already seen it, but we haven't talked about it much, there's a lot of things in the book of Acts that are descriptive, not prescriptive. Do you understand the difference? Descriptive means this is just a description of what happened. Prescription is this is the prescription for how you should always do it. There's a lot of things that we see in the book of Acts that we are tempted to go, oh, they did it that way, so we must do it the exact same way. No, no, no. A lot of the book of Acts is description, not prescription. So what I'm about to show you is description, not prescription. It doesn't mean it's the only way to pray, but it is a powerful description. Notice what they don't pray for. They don't pray, Lord, these people are against you. Judge them. Sick them, God. Right, my, my pastor, when I was a new believer in high school, he, he would say, you know, we're called to pray for our enemies. And, and that's not the, praying for enemies is not the way you pray for people as they cut you off on the way to work, right? Where you pray, Lord, blind them. <laughs> right? Like, they don't pray like that. Right? And, and the Bible has lots of Im, what are called imprecatory prayers. If you want to learn more about that, go in our sermon archive, and we did a message on that uh, in, in Psalm 137. You can go check that out. That's an appropriate way to pray. But in this case, they don't pray that way. They don't pray judgment on their opponents. They don't pray uh, for the people who are threatening them to be harmed. They don't do that. Notice what they also don't pray for. They don't pray for relief from the pressure. They don't say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and make them go away. And now, Lord, look upon this opposition we're facing and make it stop. They don't pray that. It's interesting. Again, that doesn't mean we can't pray for our circumstances to have the pressure relieved, but they don't, at least in this case. They don't pray for a change in circumstance. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and make us the most popular people in town. They don't do that. This makes me think a little bit about a a story that I saw recently. And um, we we actually sent an email about this a couple weeks ago about this woman named Vanitha. And uh, Vanitha is a woman who... um, her story was chronicled in about a 10-minute video, and uh, we'll post it on social media and stuff if you want to see it. Um, but she's had an unbelievably difficult life. Uh, she was living in, I believe, the UK as a little kid and contracted polio as a child. She became a Christian at 16. She got married. She had an infant son, and at seven weeks old, he had had some health complications and she went in for his seven-week checkup and the, and the doctor, well, actually it wasn't the doctor they normally saw, it was another doctor that was filling in that day. That doctor checked out the baby and said, oh, he's doing fine and took him off some of the medication that he'd been taking. And that night, her two-month-old son died from a mistake of a doctor. She ended up having post-polio syndrome, and when you watch the video, she's, you know, she's hobbling along and having a hard time moving, and that was worsened by more doctor's mistakes that had been made. 
in the midst of all of that and a number of miscarriages, her husband left her all alone with her two daughters. Right? And she had thought, I'm a Christian. It's not supposed to go like this for me. This isn't what I wanted. This isn't what I thought I had signed up for. Right? And all the questions that we would ask in it. And then she describes, and I, I love this quote, she describes what she learned through this. Here's what she says. She says, God turned my what if to even if. She said, I realized I lived in this constant fear of what if this happens? What if that happens? What if this doesn't go the way I think? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And she said, God, through his word, changed my mentality to even if. And there's two scriptures that she mentions as she talks about this. Um, interestingly, both of them have the reference 3, 17, and 18. The first one is Daniel. Daniel 3, 17 and 18. It's a story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who will not bow the knee uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. And the threat is that they will be thrown into this fiery furnace. And here's how they respond. They say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. She said, I saw this, and I saw, you know what? These are people who are rejoicing in God even if the circumstance doesn't change. Even if it gets worse before it gets better. And she said, when I began to see this, I, I started, instead of worrying about what if, I started praying that God would help me to love him and honor him and trust him even if. The other passage she looked at was Habakkuk chapter 3 verses 17 and 18. Here's what it says. It says, even if the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, right? We, we can't relate to a lot of this, right? Not a lot of you are worried about the olive failing. But in this, this is saying if everything, if there's total economic collapse, if everything in my life is crumbling, even if that happens, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Even if God doesn't rescue me. I know he can. I think he will. But even if he doesn't, I'm not going to bow the knee. Even if everything in my life is crumbling, I'll still take joy. I'll still rejoice in the Lord. Now listen, this doesn't mean we can't pray for our circumstances to change doesn't mean we can't pray for relief from the pain, for relief from the pressure, right? The, the Lord is a good father. And sometimes the scripture says we don't have because we don't ask. And sometimes we ask and God says no. There's nothing wrong with asking, but there's something I think that at least challenges my faith through this Acts chapter four. Because my first thing is we'll make it change, make it easier, relieve the pain. And, and, and what if instead we prayed the way they prayed. So number three, what they do pray for. What do they pray for? Verse 29, and now Lord, look upon their threats 
and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The first thing they pray for is give us more boldness. This is incredible, right? This, this is like their, their backs are up against the wall. They know the persecution is just going to get worse. And they don't pray for it to stop. They say, Lord, help us to be even stronger. Help us to be even bolder. I can't help as I read this, and, but think about so much of the civil rights movement in our country and how much of it was really fueled by believers who were inspired by what they saw in the early church. Martin Luther King Jr. is a great example. Here's what he says about this. He says, like the early Christians, we must move into a sometimes hostile world armed with the revolutionary gospel of Jesus Christ. With this powerful gospel, we shall boldly challenge the status quo. Give me more boldness. God, I'd love you to change the circumstance, but until you do, give me courage. Give me boldness. Help me challenge the status quo. Help me challenge the things that aren't right. That's what they pray for. Second thing they pray for is verse 30. We pray for boldness, verse 30. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. God, stretch out your hand. God, keep healing. God, keep raising lame people. God, keep doing signs. Keep doing wonders. God, would you do what only you can do? That's how they pray. Now, you may have been wondering, because we've been looking at week after week after week, these various signs and wonders that happen. This isn't the last one that's going to be read about in Acts chapter 4. And uh, I don't have uh, time this morning to go into a full kind of understanding of that. And I realize some of you, that's a more pressing question than it would be for others. Uh, But one of our pastors, Seth Trout, um, has written a blog post that's excellent. It's on our website today. Um, uh, you, know, you can go there this morning or this afternoon. It, it's called, How Should We Be Thinking About Signs and Wonders Today? So if you just kind of wonder how that works, uh, if you wonder about wonders, go check that out. So what do they pray for? They pray, give me more boldness. And they pray, God, do what you can do. Stretch out your hand. Let me ask this. What if God doing the impossible wasn't him changing our situation, but giving us more strength to be bold in our faith in the midst of the same situation? What if that was actually God doing the impossible? Right? We think, God, I need a miracle. And to us, that's changed the situation. But what if God give me a miracle was, God, give me courage, give me faith, give me trust, give me boldness, give me confidence, give me endurance that I do not and will not and cannot have unless you give it. What if that was the miracle that God wanted to do in the midst of our suffering? What if that was the miracle that God wanted to do in the midst of our opposition? Maybe God will be exceedingly gracious and change the situation. And maybe God will be exceedingly gracious and give you strength to endure it. So they pray together. They don't pray that it would change. They do pray for boldness and for God's power. The last thing I want to consider is why do they pray this way? Why? Why why pray this way? What, What undergirds prayers like this? 
right? What did they have to believe? What did they have to know? What did they have to feel an experience of God in order to pray like this? Well, the whole first part of the prayer tells us why they pray this way. Listen, to pray that God would give you more boldness and more courage and more endurance in the midst of your unchanging circumstance, that is crazy unless you know the same things they knew. Unless your confidence is rooted in the same things theirs was. What was that? Look at how they begin their prayer. Verse 24. They lifted their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. This word means master of masters, right? There's a lot of words throughout the New Testament that mean Lord, that mean master. This is a word that's even stronger than that. Master of masters, sovereign Lord, the, the, the Lord who reigns and rules over everything. That's who we're praying to. We're not praying to a God that we have to kind of, maybe we'll get lucky and he'll hear us. Maybe if he's in a good mood, he could do something about this. No, we are praying to the God of gods, the master of masters, the king of kings. That's who they're praying to. That's why they can pray this way. Look how they continue. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. God, you own it all. You made it all. There's not a maverick molecule. There is not a square inch of the universe over which you do not say, mine. I made this. I own this. That's the God they're praying to. And this is the God who fulfills his purpose even through his opponents. That's the next thing they pray. Look at verse 25. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Now, here they're quoting Acts 2. One thing, or I'm sorry, not Acts 2, uh, Psalm 2. One thing you see throughout the book of Acts is there, there's this constant tandem of they're reflecting on the scripture and they're praying. They're reflecting on the scripture and they're praying. Right? They're, they're breathing in God's word. They're bringing out prayer. And they're reflecting on Psalm 2. And, and Psalm 2 begins this way. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The psalmist is, is sort of sitting back at all the world that goes, oh, we're going to be against God. And the psalmist sort of sits back and goes, hey, you getting this? You, you, you guys all see this? <laughs> Everyone's against God. Fools. You can't stop God. You're plotting in vain. And you go, oh, but, but I'm going to, verse 26, I'm going to set myself. I'm going to gather together. I'm going to be against God. I'm going to be against his anointed. He goes, the psalmist is saying, why do people do that? Everyone's going to have to bow the knee to the Son of God, is what it says at the end of Psalm chapter 2. Everyone. Right? And so that's what they're reflecting on. They're going, we have the master of masters. He made everything. He owns everything. He even told us in his word that some people were going to come against him, but that can't even stop him. And we saw that play out. Look at verse 27. For truly, they're going, this is how we saw this. We saw, at, we saw Psalm 2 filled before our eyes. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel. All these people were against you, God. The Gentiles and the Roman governor and, and Herod. 
And even the people of Israel, even God's people have started to line up against God. And what did they do when all these people got together? When all these people were plotting, were raging against God? What did they do? They fulfilled God's purpose. Look at verse 28. They all gathered together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Get this. The reason they can pray with boldness is because they know that God is the king of kings, that God made everything, has power over everything, and that even those who hate God, even those who oppose them, even the worst of circumstances cannot undo God's good purposes for his people. Right? What they meant for evil, God meant for good. This is why those who are followers of Christ, those who love the Lord, know that God is working all things, all things, according to his good pleasure. He's working all of those things for good. All of them. Even the death of Jesus. Do you get that's what they're saying? The most evil act in history was still part of God's plan. That's where you get boldness. Listen, if, if, if God's weak, you can't pray for boldness. You just got to worry. I got to worry. Right? And, and we've said this before. Do you know what worry is? Worry is praying in your direction. That's what worry is. Why would you pray in your direction? Because you think, I have the resources to solve this. So if I just think about it, if I just worry, if I just, oh, oh I gotta, I gotta, how am I going to do it? And that's praying in your direction because you think you're big. Listen, when you know God's big, you pray in his direction. But it's not just that you know that God's big and God's strong, but you know that God cares. Well, how would you know that God cares? How would you know that God is for you? Because here's what it says in Romans 8. It says, if God is for us, who could be against us? You go, well, how do you know God's for us? He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Listen, when you're shaped by that view of God, that God is absolutely powerful and God is absolutely good, then regardless of the circumstance, then regardless of the threat, you trust him. So here's what I want to do. This would be foolish of us to uh, talk about praying about the things we're nervous about and not do it. So what I want to do is I want to um, give us a moment, and, and I'll, I'll tell you here in just a minute, and I want to just let it be quiet for a minute, two minutes. And what I want you to do is I want you to Remember the thing that you felt like was most concerning, you felt like was most challenging. And, and would you spend some moments praying to God that you could trust him even if the circumstance doesn't change? After a minute or two, uh, Seth is going to come up. He's going to lead us in communion. Let's pray.